The liturgy is in fact the first teacher of catechism. Being more is not just what we get to define, it's how God calls us to himself. He is the more. To do a little mystagogical catechesis. Mystagogical catechesis. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand. <laughs> is that a little too hot? Sorry. Be more. That makes sense. Be more. Yes! Welcome to Mysticat. This is your podcast about mystagogical catechesis. I'm Father Andrew Strobel. I'm Curtis Ketty. And today we are continuing in the Eucharistic prayer of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Yeah, I mean, we've been going through the Mass pretty slowly, doing some real mystagogical catechesis, and now we've really slowed down because we have arrived at the Eucharistic prayer, which the germ, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, calls the center and summit of the entire celebration. And last time we looked at, you know, the beginning of it, the preface, the the holy, 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 and then the epiclesis, the calling down of the Holy Spirit upon the gifts. And now we have arrived at the moment, the moment where in the Missal, it's all caps. <laughs> it is. That's something, uh, yeah, that is so true. Uh, these words that we're about to reflect on for today's episode um, are in all caps. Yeah, and they're in all caps because they are the word of Christ himself. Yeah. I mean, they are the, the, the words that echoing through time, this eternal moment that are being made present to us through the person of the priest who's in the person of Christ. It's really um, quite striking and amazing. And I don't really, I don't feel at all equipped or qualified to, to talk about these things, but we're going to try. <laughs> well, we, hey, we've not been necessarily equipped or qualified to talk about anything we've talked about on Mystic Cat, but we're trying. Um, yeah. But in the Eucharistic prayer now, we are getting to a part of the Eucharistic prayer that is, as you mentioned, um, within the Eucharistic prayer itself, the central point, the central point of encounter. Oh, so that's interesting. So the Eucharistic prayer is the center and summit of the celebration. But here, what we're coming up to is the center and summit of the Eucharistic prayer. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let me just slowly... Before we get to this, to build the suspense, just review a little bit of where we've come from. So, you know, we had the introductory rites um, where we enter and we leave the world behind and we enter into the realm of God, this eternal realm, the eternal now. Um, we enter into something that's already taking place. We, we confess our sins. We confess our unworthiness. And then we shout out the Gloria, glory to God in the highest, your revelation to the highest. And from there... You know, we have the collect and then into the liturgy of the word where God speaks to us and we respond to him. We have the homily and then we move into the creed where we renew our baptismal promises and then the, the prayers of the faithful in which we join our prayers to the prayer of the great high priest Christ for the world by virtue of our baptism. And then we move into the liturgy of the Eucharist where we're at right now. And according to, again, according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, if you have yours handy, starting in paragraph 78, we have this beautiful description of the Eucharistic prayer, and it actually splits it into eight parts. The first is that thanksgiving. 
that's where we get the word Eucharist. We're offering thanks. It is right and just, always and everywhere, to give you thanks and praise, which moves into that acclamation, holy, holy, holy. You know, we're joining with the Song of the Angels. And then, O Lord, the fount of all holiness, make holy, therefore, these gifts. As, you know, we call the Holy Spirit down upon the offerings that we have brought before Christ in the preparation of the gifts. Then, when we have done that epiclesis, we move into the institution narrative and consecration of the gifts, where they're going to now be transubstantiated from bread and wine to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And that is where we're at right now. That's part four of Eucharistic prayer. So we have Thanksgiving, acclamation, epiclesis, and now institution and consecration, part yep. four. Which it is incredible as you kind of walk slowly through the parts of the liturgy, but then especially now the parts of the Eucharistic prayer and see this buildup and how our Lord is preparing us that we do give him thanks first and then we acclaim him then we call the Holy Spirit. It's all focused on him, not on the work that we're doing. And that's what's really beautiful about this this moment now in immediate preparation for the consecration, the words of institution that our Lord gave. Now, that's an interesting phrase, though, that these are the words of institution, because that actually is like sacramental language, right? Because the seven sacraments, we say, we're all instituted by Christ as outward signs with invisible grace, right? That provide the actual life of God to us. Um, and so these words, these words of institution uh, were actually spoken to us by the Lord, uh, given to us at the Last Supper, which is amazing, right? So that we can trace all the seven sacraments um, to Christ, that he instituted them. Um, very explicitly, we have that in uh, the Gospels at the Last Supper, um, when our Lord shared this final meal with his apostles. You know, I'd, I've heard that definition before. It's very popular, that yeah. visible sign of an invisible grace. Yeah. But I don't like it. It's oh, yeah. Because, well, that's fine. Well, it's like a visible sign. Yeah, really? What other kind of sign is Well, that? sure. That's a very broad definition of sacrament. Because, yes, yes. Is there such thing as an invisible sign? I mean, it just feels mm-hmm. redundant. Now, here's the thing. Okay, okay. Here's the thing. Right. I like the catechism. The catechism defines the sacrament as powers that flow from the body of Christ which is always living and life-giving. Powers that flow from the body of Christ. Now, the reason I like it like that is because when we talk about Christ instituting the sacraments, that's like him laying hands on the sick. You know, him breathing on the disciples. Him, you know, saying the words of institution. And he continues to do those things through his body, the church. And so even though it's you as a priest saying these words of institution, it is actually Christ speaking and acting through you as by the virtue of the fact that you are a member of his body, particularly united to the head of the body. Yeah, I can see that where you have to keep the emphasis on, um, or not emphasis, but you have to keep that appreciation of the church's role that we are, you know, Christ now in time here. Um, but I, just I don't think like it's the a- idea of, of sacraments being like signs that, that Jesus set up. And it's like, okay, yeah. here are the signs. It's actually, it's his active yes, work for sure, in the world. For sure, for sure. Yeah, like, you can't just think of the sacraments as, oh, these are historic events that we, like, just nod back to. No, it's like our Lord's do- working through them now. Right. Um, but I think the, the point that 
our Lord instituted them is super important because, I mean, especially so much of how we got to this moment in the mass is based on what our Lord did, right? He took wheat bread and grape wine, right? Like Mm. there are certain things we are restricted to because our Lord did that. Like, and that's been, it's funny. I um, saw some saint who was talking about that um, in turn uh, saint. Uh, okay. These, this is fun. When I talk about f- saints, I'm not familiar with saint uh, Pascasius. <laughs> Pasca. See us. Pascasius. Wow. He, I don't know what year, but Pascasius, that's like Roman of Romans, right? Um, put no salt or honey in it, referring to the, the bread used for, for the Eucharist, as some wish to do, nor add or take away anything, but just as Christ has instituted it, so must you believe and understand it to be done. So I totally get what you're saying. Like, um, this isn't just like a nod back to what Jesus did a long time ago. The sacraments are what Jesus is doing right now to reach out to us. Like, it, it's... It's him. It's his work, but they also were instituted by our Lord. I mean, they're given to uh, given to the church by the Lord, um, you know. And yeah, and we carry them out now, of course. Right? So. We didn't invent them. We didn't just you come know, up with them. We are yeah. participating in what Christ is doing, so we don't get to add things. Yeah. He's the only one who would get to add and change things. We just continue to do what he did through the Holy Spirit. You know, like yeah. that's that's what gives us the so power. That's really important, though with the Eucharist, especially in um, this moment of the mass, when we consider what our Lord uh, did at the last supper to have a little, just a little bit deeper appreciation of the last supper, which I know, uh, yeah, you could go on for many, many podcasts about, but I mean, if you had to just explain to somebody why the last supper was significant to the apostles that were gathered there to early Christians um, and their Jewish roots, especially. And then of course, you know, if you had to explain it to a Gentile who was coming in fresh, not part of the covenants of God before our Lord. Yeah, what would you oh, say? Well, number one, the Last Supper is really a bad way to refer okay. to this. And I mean, we all do it, the Last Supper, but of course the disciples weren't calling it the Last no. Supper. He's like, welcome to the Last Supper. It's such an ominous, you know, and in, in a way it's the First Supper. Well, sure. But, it's, a, it's a reading back into history. Yeah. Right. But what they were gathering together for was the Passover mm-hmm. celebration that, you know, the idea of representing that moment in Israel's history when they were set free from the slavery that they were under in Egypt, both physical and spiritual slavery under the Egyptian gods. And here on this night, the angel of death was to come through the, the whole land and take the firstborn son of, you know, all creatures, e- right? of all families. And yeah. the reason, the reason is if you look back in Exodus, you see God waging war against the Egyptian gods, the false gods to show Israel and Egypt who he is, the, the God who is. I am that I am. I'm the God who exists. And so he's taking down each God in turn. And here we have the climax in which he's going to take down the God that Pharaoh himself claims to be. And he's going to take Pharaoh's firstborn son. And he tells Israel that they can be spared this plague if they take a lamb, a one-year-old lamb spotless, and they slay that lamb at the, you know, at the close of the day when everyone is not working for all to see this lamb, this holy animal that you could be killed for hurting because it was a sacred animal associated again with Egyptian 
worship. They're going to take this and they're going to kill it in public and put the blood on the front doors of their homes and then eat the lamb, drawing a line in the sand saying, we can never go back. This, you know, we are now following and trusting God, the true God. And the lamb serves as a substitute for that firstborn son. And because of that, and this is an important detail, the firstborn son in those ha- those families now belongs in a special way to God. Mm-hmm. That firstborn son has like almost like a priestly role until later on. That's too many details, but listen. Yeah, I was going to say, you're getting into Sorry, it. Okay, but I can't help it. But I know. Here, okay, Every, <laughs> God makes this command. Now, that was beautiful, and they escape, right? Yeah. They escape, and they, they're no longer enslaved, and then they meet God at the mountain, Mount Sinai, and they enter into a covenant there. But now that could have been a beautiful story that they would remember, but God commands them every year to do it again. And when their children ask, why are we doing this? You are going to answer them for in every generation because God delivered me yeah. from Egypt. Even if it happened hundreds of years before, God delivered me from Egypt. It's bringing that into the present. And all of the symbols and things in that special meal, the lamb, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, you know, all of the stuff there was meant to bring that moment into the present. You know, what makes this night different than other nights? And that Passover is still celebrated every year. So the disciples gather together with Jesus for the Passover meal, and Jesus does the most incredible thing. He actually changes the ritual. Like he he adjusts the he adds to the right. Now this would be like some like a priest suddenly changing the the what was going on in the mass. Everyone's attention would suddenly be peaked. Like what are you doing? Yeah. So you take a cup that normally you would say something like the same thing every time, and he says, "But this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink." It would just be like mind blowing. And of course, the disciples would have yeah. no idea. It would just be hitting them this mystery and be like, what, what is, what is happening? So well, that's, that's the Last Supper. Yeah. This revolution. Yeah. And I think that's so important for us because, um, you know, the mass is a ritual. It's done again and again and again and prayed again and again and again. And it's the same words. Thanks be to God again and again and again. But. Like, I think we do forget how shocking it would have been to the apostles gathered for the Passover meal. Like you're saying, Jesus all of a sudden changes these words that were passed down. Like that wouldn't have just been in... That God commanded. Yeah, God commanded them. (laughs) And then your family lived their faith so fully that they passed it on to the children. And now who is he? And that is the question. Who is he? To change the rite, to change the ritual, and uh, and now bring a whole new um, prayer into this ritual. So I want to address what you just said, though, because it's really interesting. The idea that not only was the Passover the same thing over and over and over again, but now the Mass is the same thing over and over and over again. And a, a complaint that I often hear is, why can't we change things up a little bit? Yeah, you know, shake it up. Why do we have to do the same prayers every <laughs> single week? Like, can't we do? Can't we be a little creative? We're creative people. We could do things in lots of different ways. Keep it fresh. Keep it new. Get get the young people. And the, the truth, <laughs> all those young people who want things fresh, the, the truth is we do the same thing every single time because what we're doing is we're entering into a mystery, yeah. a mystery that has no bottom. And so every time we're going deeper 
and deeper and allowing that mystery to just sink in to our, the very depths of our hearts yeah. and grasp us. And so it takes repetition. I mean, think about this. Think about the, the like a Bible verse that you knew when you were a kid and now you read it today. It's the same words, but it has new significance because yeah. you are changing and yeah. that the mystery is changing you. So that's, well, I think, what's going on here too. Before we get into to another reason, I think the apostles would have been shocked at the Last Supper. Why don't you read uh, for everyone the words of institution oh. uh, as in the Mass, in the Mishal. Okay, so here we go. We're finally here. We've talked about it. And, and they're easier gonna... to find because they are in all capital letters. That's what we were referring to earlier. That's right. In the Missal, the words of institution by our Lord are all caps. Now, that has a different connotation today when you put all caps like in a Take message. This, yeah. all of you. Yeah, we're not Which shouting is funny. these. We're not shouting. Actually, we're doing the opposite. But Yeah, I mean, we're just, it's suddenly becoming laser focused. Mm -hmm. Like, if anywhere in the Mass the priest disappears, it should be right here. I mean, the, the priest should be disappearing all the time because he's in persona Christi. Meaning that but, when you're at Mass, you're not focusing on the, the person of the priest. You're right. focusing on what the action of the liturgy. Yeah. Right. And in a way, you almost don't want to interpret these words overly. You just want to say them and let the words yeah, stand for Yeah, because them. this is not like a passion play where we'd be acting out what happened um, in the events of our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection, right? Like, that's not what's going on here. Right. We're not just acting. It's not a reenactment. No, it's not a reenactment. This is the mystery coming and meeting us. This is heaven and earth touching eternity and time coming together. Okay, here we go. Yeah, so what are those words? The suspense here. So it starts, At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and giving thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you. And in the rubrics, he shows the consecrated host to the people, places it again on the patent, and genuflects in adoration. So let's just, do you want me to keep going? Let's just stop there. No, keep going. After this, the priest continues, in a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, and the priest bows slightly here, to the immensity of the words that are to follow, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. The priest shows the chalice to the people, places it on the corporal, and genuflects in adoration. Yeah. Now, we genuflect in adoration, um, but what would the apostles have done, you know, at that moment? It's not to try to guess, oh, what did they do? We know what they did. But it's amazing. Like, if you consider what we talked about, how this is a Passover meal, it's a ritual meal that our Lord is sharing with his apostles. And then all of a sudden he changes the words and he changes the words to say that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's nauseating, right? Like, this is nuts to be sitting there. To have this meal that you've experienced again and again your whole life, that is the de definition of what it means to be God's people, that God has saved you from slavery. And now the one you've chosen to follow for three years, who called you by name and uh, who has worked miracles, has revealed um, so much to you, now says, 
that you have to eat, that this is his body and this is his blood. Yeah, that's a significant detail because this would have been the third Passover they celebrated mm-hmm. with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So they've seen him do it normally. Yeah. You know, there's something different about this time. And that's not like it's totally out of left field either because we know no. right from the beginning, John the Baptist points out to Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God. So already things are percolating. And then, of course, in John 6, you know, which was around the time of Passover, Jesus says, you're going to have to eat my Mm -hmm. um, flesh and drink my blood. And so there's been talk of this, but now suddenly it's upon them. Like it's happening. It's It's happening. What does it mean? And of course, they're going to go from there to completely abandoning and betraying him yeah. in just a few hours. In fact, yeah, only one of the men that's in the room with him at that point is actually going to see um, like this come to fulfillment on the cross. But in right. the liturgy, we know that this is this the words of institution happen the day before the sacrifice of the cross, right? It actually says that. What is the language there again in the missile of um, right before here? The words of institution. That, um, at the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion. Yeah, that he's entering. So, time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion or in the other Eucharistic prayers, the day before he suffered, right? Yeah. So, that line of the day before he suffered or this reference here to enter into his passion, the day before he suffered, that was actually put into the Mass by um, Pope Alexander I, who was the sixth successor, number six after St. Peter, right? To wow. unite the words of the institution at the Last Supper to the cross, just make it very clear, right? Like what our Lord's referring to here is his body and blood offered on the cross. He didn't just uh, like transform the ritual of the Passover, no. but now he extended it because yeah. it didn't end. Like it, it was now continuing through his passion the next yeah. day. Yeah. Now the apostles, of course, don't know this yet, but it is amazing to consider now looking back and what we're entering into is properly referred to as the holy sacrifice of the mass because these words of institution then um, are fulfilled in our Lord's giving of his body and blood, his body being separated from his blood on the cross. Now, that's an important point too, right? Like we say um, these two uh, parts of the institution referring first to his body and then to his blood. But the idea of, that's really interesting, the idea of the separation of these these species. Even though Christ is fully present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the host, and in the like the precious blood, body, blood, soul, and divinity, I mean, but there's the sign mm-hmm. of the separate, of those being separated. That's the yeah. sign of death. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, body being separated from blood. And this would have been terrifying to the apostles, right? Because... Like, it's explicit. It's explicit in the law. You do not drink blood, even of animals, right? Like, you do not do that. Um, and I was really struck by this in Leviticus, right? Like, this reference. Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy. Curtis is like, really? Wow. All right, let's bring in some Leviticus. Leviticus, yeah. Seven, chapter 17, verses 10 to 12. If any man of the house of Israel or of the strangers, this is interesting, right? Of the house of Israel or strangers. That's the whole world right? That sojourns among them eats any blood. I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people for the life of the flesh is in the blood 
And I have given it for you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Like, it couldn't be more clear that there's a prohibition of eating blood. And yet, our Lord says that you have to eat it. So you have why, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What? What? Yeah. What's going on? What's here? going on here? Why would God like do a U-turn on that? Well, it's interesting, right? Because uh, at different points too in sacred scripture, we hear that um, our Lord doesn't desire the sacrifices of the animals, right? He wants contrite hearts. And here, Jesus Christ is taking on now the fulfillment of the law, and whereas every covenant has included blood so too now our lord is is making that very very clear in the new covenant right i think that's so important right here right that the covenants before have included blood like you you had led up to the um to mount sinai but what happened at mount sinai well at mount sinai <laughs> they enter into a covenant yeah with god and it's it's i i didn't want to bring this up okay well but, too but bad but there's three levels. Okay, here we okay? go. There's three levels. At the at the bottom, the, the, there's all the people. They're not allowed to touch the mountain. They're gathered. But they vow to do what God commands. Mm-hmm. And so they sacrifice these bulls, and they fill up these huge bowls with blood. And Moses then sprinkles the blood on the people and then splashes it on the altar, signifying that God and the people are now one blood. That's the blessing, but also the curse of mm-hmm. if you d- disobey, if you break the covenant, you know, maybe what happened to these bulls. Happened to you. Of course, they disobey just a month later. But then the second level is Moses goes up with the elders halfway up the mountain and they actually eat a meal together with the sacrifice, with the sacrificed animal. They eat a meal with God. And so there's this idea of communion with him. And then finally, Moses alone goes all the way up to the top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments to actually truly be with God in this this profound communion and here you know we have like a parallel i mean what was happening on mount sinai was a shadow cast backwards of what was to come and so yeah we have this communion this meal this sacrifice this covenant is all taking place within the holy sacrifice of the mass where we are the people and we gather around the sanctuary and we we have made our baptismal promises. We have made our vow. And now here is the blood of the new covenant, you know, that is binding us together as children of God. And then you as the priest in persona Christi, you know, that you are the one who is sort of at the top of the mountain. And oh, it's, it's really reading the Old Testament and then coming to mass is like, you know, mind blowing. You see it, it's happening right there in front of you. This is not in the past. Mm-hmm. It's being fulfilled in the moment. Okay, I'm gonna calm down now. No, I but, don't want you to calm down. But blood I mean, blood is yeah. super, super significant. And the fact that he's asking us to drink it, it almost it almost seems as though the prohibition of eating and drinking blood and flesh was there precisely because of this. Because of this. Because this, this was the only time, mm-hmm. the significance of this, the blood, body, soul, and divinity of the Lord and creator of the universe, the word made flesh. That's who we were made for. Yeah, we were made, yes, for this sacrifice. We were made for this consumption of flesh. We were made for this 
uh, life-giving blood, right? Because, I mean, blood in the ancient world represented life, right? And here's the thing, and this is, I think this is um, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, uh, later Pope Benedict XVI, he talked about the significance of sacrifice. It's like, why, why were we sacrificing animals? It's because there was this innate desire, this recognition within the human person that, um, that we needed to offer ourselves fully back to God, like that there had been a rupture of communion and that we needed to offer our very lives to God, but we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. We were selfish. We were too afraid of suffering. Yeah. You know, and so we took animals and we would offer the animal on our behalf. Instead of offering ourselves, we would offer this animal. Mm-hmm. Instead of offering our blood, we'd offer the animal's blood and we would do it over and over and over and over again. Well, God finally comes as one of us and does what we could not do. Yeah, we would he not offers, do. offers, would not and could not. Mm-mm. He offers himself for us as the ultimate sacrifice. And then, this is the crazy thing, he turns to us and says, take and eat, take and drink, become one with me, and you join in this sacrifice. I'm going to make it possible for you to do what you could not do. Yeah, it's only through Jesus Christ now that we can fulfill what we couldn't do and wouldn't do, the sacrificing of ourselves, right? I mean, this is amazing. This is, I mean, this is wild. And Source and summit of yeah. everything that we talk about. Everything that we right talk here. about. Because you talk about the drama of salvation history, right? The drama of us being created in the image and likeness of God and then immediately rejecting him as our father. That path of sinfulness, of separation, of division, of violence, of death and suffering that then our Lord has prepared us painstakingly through time to come back so that we could get to this moment where now we have access to the cure, access to hope, Jesus Christ himself. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, I once read that it wasn't the, the quality or immensity of Christ's suffering that saved us. It was the quality and immensity of his love that saved us. And sometimes we think, oh, he must have suffered enough to appease the wrath of God or whatever. No, 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 no. He loved enough to reconcile humanity to himself. That, and and then he invites us to participate in that. Now, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just like, well, I mean, I'm sure what you experience as a husband and a father, right? I mean, when your family is hurting in any way, any type of, of suffering, like the degree that you suffer is proportional to how much you love them. Right. I mean, it's crazy when you consider the love of God for us. And that is, you know, what what has made him vulnerable to suffering. I mean, you know, I once heard an analogy um, of the atonement. So atonement at one minute. It's this moment that God, you know, comes and brings humanity and God back together again at one through Christ Mm -hmm. at one. Okay, so the analogy is this. Imagine a married couple. And one of them is unfaithful, cheats on their spouse. What would it take for that married couple to reconcile? And the short answer is love. But it's going to be love experienced in two ways. First, for the one who was cheated, the one who, who suffered the infidelity like against them, that they're going to need to express love by virtue of forgiveness, 
But that is going to be painful to forgive that kind of deep betrayal. But because of love, they're willing to do it. You know, they're willing to forgive. But the other also needs to take a path of love. And for the other, the one who actually committed the act of infidelity, what they need to experience is they need to experience the suffering that they caused their partner. They need to actually walk that path of true empathy and really understand what they did to the person that they promised to love. And if they can walk that path of suffering because of their love for their partner, they might be able to meet that that partner who wants to forgive them. But it's the same love experienced in two different ways. Well, what happens with Christ is that in his very person, he is uniting the two thirsts, the thirst of God for humanity and the thirst of humanity for God. Mm -hmm. And not only does he experience that suffering of humanity rejecting him, but he also experienced the pain of, of Adam who rejected God, and he walks the path of that suffering as a human, and he experienced that suffering as God all in his person. And it's that immensity of love mm-hmm. that brings humanity and God back together again in the passion. Yeah. And the reconciliation that was like a miracle. It like is. He did it. It is. And if we come to Mass and are just spectators of the words of institution, if we just like passively hear them instead of then acknowledging all that our Lord has done and we come to him as the ones who were unfaithful through our sins and yet he still is reaching out to us. You know, if we come with that perspective of the need for for love to be the only thing that can bring us back to God, um, that really does transform everything. And how many times have we heard these words? If you raised Catholic, if you've been going to Mass, you've heard it over and over, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant that will be poured out for you. And then how many of us, just like the disciples, immediately upon leaving, go flip somebody off in the parking lot? You know what I mean? Like, it's it's the same kind of abandonment of the mission just like the disciples did, we abandon the mission when we walk out of the church store. I do it every time. It, yeah. Do you know what sometimes the worst temptation is? That uh, not the I don't know how to rate degrees of temptation. I'm not an expert in that. But a temptation that is crazy at mass is I wonder what's next for breakfast. Right. Usually mass is in the morning, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you fast before mass. You should fast an hour if you're before receiving holy communion at, uh, at a minimum. Um, but then that, think of that temptation, how that works. It's like focusing on then what goes back to simply that which we eat and then still die. <laughs> like instead of on the hope for eternity that we get to taste in the Eucharist. Right. I mean, it's amazing how evil the evil one is and gets after us at mass. And especially at this moment of consecration, because, um, it's not just like this wonderful remembering and just like this knowledge that we have. It's also a reality going on on the altar. And I think that's so important too for us to speak about, right? That these words actually change the bread into the body and blood of Christ, the wine into the body and blood of Christ, right? That the words actually have power and authority, which shouldn't be a surprise since Jesus Christ is God and the word of God has always had this authority to change things. But I found something I wanted to share with you from a saint, St. Peter Damien, uh, speaking on these words. And I haven't shared with this with you yet, so you might shut me down, but that's okay. We'll see. We'll see. He said, the bread and wine are changed into the flesh and blood by that word of power 
by which the word became flesh and dwelled among us, by which he spoke and they were made, by which the woman was converted into a statue, by which the rod was changed into a serpent, by which the springs became blood and water changed into wine, for the word of Eliseus, Elijah, could bring down fire from heaven. Will the word of Christ been able to change blood into flesh? Like I just thought he goes through like all these examples mm. of the power of, of the word of God through his prophets and holy people uh, that have done actual changes. But now we're going on a whole different level, right? Because we're changing the nature of things. And you said something earlier, a term, transubstantiation, that I think um, if you just hear and you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But we have to have some appreciation of some uh, ancient Greek philosophy <laughs> to even get what the church is saying with that term. And thanks be to God for St. Thomas Aquinas, who really reflected on this quite a bit, which I know you're a big fan of his. Oh, yeah. Well, who, who, <laughs> who's, who's not a fan? Who's not a fan? St. Thomas Aquinas. But okay. You know, this is interesting. I was talking to my seven-year-old. Yeah. We've been reading Lord of the Rings, mm. and he was he was wondering about the poem that opens the book Lord of the Rings. If you've ever read it, you'll know that it opens with the poem, um, you know, one ring to um, bring them all, one ring to find them, you know, and one ring to, I can't believe I'm messing this up, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the lands of Mordor where the shadows lie. Okay, that's the opening. And William, my son, was wondering why Sauron sat down to write a poem. Because this is a poem written by Sauron and inscribed upon the One Ring. And I was telling him, okay, well, listen, it's not a poem. It's a spell. Hmm. It's a, it's a word, it's words of power. Like by these words, he poured himself, a part of himself into this one ring so that he could rule all of these other lesser rings. And William said, so just just words that have power? I'm like, well, it depends on who's speaking them. But yes, words have power and they continue to have power. This isn't just fiction. This is real. Like I said, think about Father Andrew when he's at mass and he says, this is my body, which is given up for you. Those words have power, but they wouldn't have power if I said them, mm -hmm. but they have power because he's a priest. He was given the power to say those words and actually change the bread and the wine to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And William's like, that's real? Like the idea yeah. that words have power. And then he said, wait, so is that kind of like how the word stupid has power to make you feel things? And I'm like, yes. In a lesser way, yeah. But in this case, it, this words actually can change reality. Change reality, yeah. Oh, it was powerful. And oh. So read, read Lord of the Rings. The moral of the story: read Lord <laughs> of the Rings. I love that. I love though that you had that moment with him where he uh, had this like spark about the mass. Oh yeah, and recognition. Well, you got yeah. as a parent, you got to find ways to, to sneak the mass into every conversation. Yeah, and I think side note for parents, God bless you. The most important catechesis that your children hear is that at your knee, um, whether it be at mass or otherwise, where you not like have this planned lesson of how you're teaching the faith that day, right. but like in the normal course of life, relate things back to uh, the faith and especially to and the mass. And be careful, as yeah, yeah. St. James says in his letter, not all should want to be teachers, mm -hmm. you know, because like the, the weight, the hefty responsibility, because you could be telling them the truth, but if you don't live it, yeah, 
then you're actually oh, telling them the opposite. And you got bigger problems super than that. Dangerous. If you've made promises as a parent for a child that you've baptized before the age of reason and was only allowed to be baptized because you promised to raise them in the practice of the faith, right? And keep that flame of faith burning in their it's heart. Not in the fine and you don't want to live it out. If you don't want to live it out after that, you got bigger That's, problems. Oh, okay. That, okay. Okay. So there's, what there's are we a talking different about? Type of fire to be St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm-hmm. You're going to do a little St. Thomas Aquinas sure. for us? Well, okay, I mean, not specific. Well, not specifically about. Although I could probably. Um, I just want to touch on the, the Greek. Yeah, the G- Greek understanding of substance and accidents, right? From Aristotle. Okay. Just well. No, go for it. That when you when you consider reality of anything, right? Of anything, um, there is the inner substance, the thing that it is, and then that which can change. So you can use anything almost as an example, right? So you can talk about a person, how you are Curtis Ketty. And, but you just had a haircut and everybody's been commenting on your haircut. Not only did I get a haircut, I got them all cut, father. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, this is what I deal with every day, folks. Okay. And uh, (laughs) once you got your hairs cut, did you cease to be Curtis? No, 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 you did not because the substance of who you are didn't change, but that which can change the accidents did. And of course, when we talk about, you know, the, the matter at the Eucharist, the matter of the sacrament, bread and wine, this is the most incredible understanding that what can change remains the same the accidents, right? Like in, in sense of like, you could break the host in half and now, you know, what you can measure has changed the weight, the shape. However, what it is, is bread. Unless the words of Christ have authority through the priest. And if those words of Christ do have authority, when said by a validly ordained priest who says the words of institution intending to do what the church intends in the consecration of the mass now what it is is no longer bread the nature of it the substance has changed into the body blood soul and divinity of jesus christ the same is true with the wine becoming the body blood soul and divinity of jesus christ and that is wild because um we don't believe it in general like the, I, it's tough to speak as a we right because obviously there's exceptions but right now in the united states the best um, data that we can find is that the majority of Catholics do not believe that those words have authority to change the substance of bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. They don't believe in tr- transubstantiation, which is terrifying. Well, transubstantiation, of course, is, yeah, our, our attempt to explain, explain the miracle, the, miracle, the mystery. The miracle. Yeah. What I think what people, a lot of people don't even know what transubstantiation no, no, no. is. They but don't believe people this, don't believe that it's the real presence. They don't believe right? in the real presence of Jesus Christ, and that's the only way we talk about the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist, is because the bread and the wine still look like bread and wine, still tastes like bread and wine. Any way you can measure and observe, bread you and would wine say molecules. bread and wine. Yeah. yeah, but what it actually is is now the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, His real, sub- true, what lies substantial beneath. presence with us. Yeah. Yeah, and that there's no substance of bread left. It's like no. uh, you mentioned Elijah before with the fire yeah. coming down. The church fathers used that story as an analogy of what takes place in the altar for Mass. You know, we call the Holy Spirit down, and it consumes the sacrifice. And what's left yeah. 
is our Lord. Like yeah. the bread and the wine are gone. It is our Lord there. That's right. We, and St. Thomas Aquinas said, if you could go back in time, 2,000 years, and stand at the foot of the cross, you would look and see a broken, battered, bloody man yeah. hanging on the cross. You would not see God because God was hidden in the weakness, behind the weakness and humility of a human. Now you look at the host and you don't even see the man but he is still there and the divinity is still there. But he is it's all, all that is the veil. there. That's like, I love yeah. that, right? Like, no, the bread and wine no longer exist because that's a, that's a heresy, right? That somehow it's Jesus and bread and Jesus and wine. Right. You know, that's there's also substantiation yeah. for those. That's a, that's a Lutheran yeah. idea that, that the bread and wine coexist alongside. If you have your heresy bingo card at home while you're listening to Mr. You know, I like to compare this, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but I like to compare it to a film. Oh, okay. So, a movie. If you've ever seen Freaky Friday, <laughs> Freaky Friday. Which one? Either one. Okay. But the Jodie Foster one is a classic. You know, it's the mother and daughter who wake up one morning after some, you know, make a wish and they switch bodies. That's the freaky. substance of the mother and daughter change, but their accidents remain the same. There's like this transubstantial substantiation type thing that goes on now consubstantiation on, on the other hand is like the movie all of me with steve martin and lily tomlin in which the ghost of lily tomlin possesses half of steve martin's body and so he's in control of one half and lily tomlin tomlin is in control of the other half you have two substances both subsisting with with the same accidents I'm just, I'm just saying that's, that might help you. That's quite the uh, reference to try to understand. <laughs> hey, transubstantiation. It's hard because there's actually no, you know, yeah. there's no nothing in reality except for this moment yeah. that comes anywhere close to this. So it, it's it is hard. It is hard, hard, hard. But um, that doesn't mean it's not true <laughs> because there is no. A way to make an analogy really to transubstantiation to anything else in our known experience, right? Like nothing else changes substance like this. Um, well, substance this does way. not change yeah, by change, very definition. Exactly. The definition. So, so this is good. This is taking the terms and, uh, yeah. It's at the one time Ooh. the substance would change. Yeah. It's really, it's miraculous. But as Pope Benedict XVI said, and I said this at a, on a previous episode, that transubstantiation is not the main miracle. Of the mass, as incredible as it is, it's yeah. just, it's the engine just getting started. The true miracle, what it's all heading towards is that we become, you and I, mm -hmm. the body of Christ. Now, yeah. I wanted to read a quote from a great theologian. Good, because then I want to read a quote okay, from a great well, theologian. You can read it. Well, we'll see who's We'll see better. who's is better. This is uh, Coleman O'Neill. Okay. And he says this, uh, Christ transforming humanity's daily bread. This is the symbol of the church. This, the common object picked up from the ordinary table, is my body. This, this common object, this piece of bread, is my body. So Christ looks at you, and you're just the ordinary, and he says, this is my body. Now, we become the body of Christ. This is incredible. We're, we're all willing to be spectators to this miracle. Mm -hmm. But when suddenly Jesus looks up at you and he says, and now you are my body. Yeah. That is stunning. So I feel like that's what this is all leading towards. And that's why it the is real presence is so important. Because okay. it's, it's so important to, to know 
that the words of institution have this power uniquely to change bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. That's all that remains. Bread and wine no longer remain. But you're absolutely right. Then it has to change us. Like it's one thing if we come to Mass and just want to observe a miracle. Like that's really great. Like wait till you hear the bells ring and then, you know, you get to observe a miracle. Um, but it's way more when you consider that you have a role now to be transformed yourself. And that's why I want to quote a great theologian. The Venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Yours is Venerable. You yeah, win. that's true. I do. He said this in regards to what you should do at the moment of consecration when you hear um, the words of our Lord, this is my body, take it. He said, this should be your response. I give myself to God. Here is my body. Take it. Here is my blood. Take it. Here is my soul, my will, my energy, my strength, my property, my wealth. All that I have, it is thine. Take it consecrate it, offer it, offer it with thyself to the heavenly father in order that he looking down on this great sacrifice may see only thee, his beloved son in whom he is well pleased, transmute the poor bread of my life into thy divine life, thrill the wine of my wasted life into thy divine spirit, unite my broken heart with thy heart, change my cross into a crucifix. Let not my abandonment and my sorrow and my bereavement go to waste. Gather up the fragments, and as the drop of water is absorbed by the wine at the offertory of the Mass, let my life be absorbed in thine. Let my little cross be entwined with thy great cross, so that I may purchase the joys of everlasting happiness and union with thee. Consecrate these trials of my life, which would go unrewarded unless united with thee, transubstantiate me so that like bread which is now thy body and wine which is now thy blood i too may be wholly thine i care not if the species remain or that like the bread and wine i seem to all earthly eyes the same as before my station in life my routine duties my work my family all these are but the species of my life which may remain unchanged but the substance of my life, my soul, my mind, my will, my heart, transubstantiate them, transform them wholly into thy service, so that through me all may know how sweet is the love of Christ. Amen. Mm. I love that guy. Yeah. I love that. Wow. So that's like Galatians 2.20. Mm. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live through Christ. Now, okay, this is incredible. This is this marital language where Christ looks at us and says, take this, this is my body. And we say, take, this is my body. Like that's a, like, it's this reciprocal, yeah. like loving relationship that you would see with the husband and wife, with a bride and a bridegroom, yeah. you know, where they offer each other themselves, their very selves. Oh, that's beautiful because we have Christ the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ. And yeah, the mass is a heavenly wedding feast and wow well and just to bring this full circle when you said oh the challenges that can come to uh to those who want to keep the mass you know fresh like change the right somehow it's like that's never ever been said in the history of humankind of like <laughs> we need a new way for husbands and wives to be united right like that is what it is and so thanks be to god the mass is the height of 
this coming together of the bridegroom and the bride um, in the holy sacrifice, right? That our Lord now offers his body, blood, soul, and divinity to us, and we now are on to offer ourselves to him. So following the words of consecration, mm -hmm. I mean, okay, if all this is true, it is. If it is true, there should be something within us that should be so stunned that we would want to fall on our faces. Yeah. That, that, that to dare approach the Lord of the universe whose holiness and existence, who is humbling himself to come as this humble food that we're about to take, uh, like you would want to crawl on your hands and knees towards this, like it's like on, like a flaming brand. Like uh, here's the God of the universe coming to you. And yet, you know, we forget, mm -hmm. we get used to it. Um, but what I really like is within the liturgy, the very next thing that happens following the consecration, the elevation of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is that you then issue these words, the mystery of faith. You don't say, let's say no. together the mystery of faith. No. Let's recount that. You just say the mystery of faith. Boom. Maybe you've said that. Reflect yeah. on that. You just elevated the host, and now you say the mystery of faith. What is that referring to? Like, why do we say this here? Yeah, um, because in the words of institution, we are now encountering the Paschal mystery, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are at Mount Calvary. Um, we now are proclaiming the mystery of faith. And, you know, there are different ways you can say the mystery of faith, right? But if we say, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again, or, you know, or... Um, when we eat when, this bread and, and drink, drink this cup, cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until yeah. you come again. Because you're actually acknowledging the sacrifice in that moment and this anticipation of the fulfillment eternally with God that this sacrifice points us then to heaven. So why don't we say the mystery of love? You know, like, well, why the mystery of faith? That's a good question because, right, faith is belief. It's knowledge given to us without, like, empirical knowledge, right? Like the way we learn other stuff. It's knowledge infused by God. And now we're believing in something we cannot measure. We're believing that, you know, this is, you know, the Paschal mystery opened up to us. So we are reflecting on the fact that what we're about to do is an act of trust. Yes. That we are believing in the words of the one mm -hmm. who came to save us. Yep. That this really is his body. And, and by the way, that's what this is. From the very beginning, from the very first mm -hmm. moment to now, we're taking on faith. We're trusting the person. Yeah. Um, and so here is the mystery of faith that we're proclaiming through the Eucharist, through the Mass, his death and professing his resurrection until he comes again. Yeah. We see it in the truth. We do. So this has been Mysticat, your podcast for mystagogical catechesis. It has been so good to reflect on the words of our Lord Jesus at the Last Supper. And uh, I'm Father Andrew Strobel. And I'm Curtis Ketty. Stay tuned next time for part three of the Eucharistic Prayer. Awesome. We're almost done. <laughs> and we're going to pray at the end just because uh, Chloe, our last guest, told us to. That's right. May our Heavenly Father's face shine upon you. Our Lord Jesus Christ reign always in your heart and in your homes. May the Holy Spirit come down upon you and bless you abundantly, especially as your hearts ache to encounter our Lord in the Eucharist. May our Blessed Mother keep you wrapped in her mantle next to her immaculate heart. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless. See ya.